0: FBS. Radio 2. Radio, 2.
1: Radio, 2. Radio
0: 2. Sit Rep with Christopher Lee. Christopher
2: Lee. Hi there. Uh, last gasp from news. Um, welcome. Welcome to the Sit Rep Roundtable on an overcast and muggy afternoon in London town. It's three minutes past four in the next hour does anyone know how to fix afghanistan and did they ever know iraq why the killing goes on and why we should still care northern ireland why the dissidents won't go away and nor can the police and we shouldn't forget that scuds and thuds who's handing out the scuds and who they're pointing at and why the junk navy sails again and what do we know about bigots probably quite a lot far more than we were to expect. OK, let's start with Afghanistan now. Yesterday, the Roman Catholic Bishop Tom Burns spoke at the funeral of Fusilier Jonathan Burgess of the Royal Welsh. He died after being wounded in Helmand. The bishop told the congregation that he wondered when Afghan or the Afghan government would take responsibility for their own security and affairs. This is part of what he
3: said. I still feel there is a surge needed, not just of uh, personnel, and they are in very short supply, but a surge also of commitment by the government to give those funds that are needed to bring this conflict in Afghanistan to a speedier conclusion and to allow the Afghan people and the institutions of Afghanistan to take responsibility for their own affairs.
2: Ah, Tom Burns, you heard there, uh, was the Roman Catholic Bishop for the Armed Forces and a former naval chaplain. So, he speaks with some authority as well as passion. On the line, the present Bishop for the Armed Forces, Bishop Richard Moth, um, Father, quoting from Bishop Tom Burns yesterday, for Jonathan is the kind of young man we need in Britain today. Do you get a sense that... Civilians and maybe the military find it difficult to criticise in case they're seen as being disloyal to the memory of young men like Fusilé Burgess.
4: Um, I'm not at all sure that this is the case, actually. There have been plenty of reports in recent months, um, as we all know, of the concerns expressed by those who've been in positions of military command over the last few years. Uh, And I don't think those kinds of expressions of concern are necessarily disloyal at all. Um I, I sense a very real support for our armed services around the country. Um and a part of that support is the sadness and the loss of all those many young, young, wonderful young young men and women who've lost their lives um you know in, including um the young soldier who Bishop Tim Bishop Tom buried yesterday.
2: Do you know I I was wondering whether especially at the time of the election going on, you know about a week to go. Um it is a week today, isn't it? Yeah. Um it's sometimes I wonder if it's difficult for the church to say what everybody maybe thinks without being accused of getting into politics.
4: Well, um, the, the, um, the, the church has a primary task to proclaim the gospel, and that's very much part of this. The message of that gospel, uh, you, know, you can never divorce that from the reality of human life. You know, where people are, so there the church must be. And, and I think the, just one example of that is the excellent work being done by our forces chaplains at, at the present time. Now, that engagement, that involvement with the world, that's bound to involve comment on what happens in the political sphere and sometimes disagreement with policy. Um, the church's mission, you know, that sometimes that will require church leaders to say hard things, things which some people, politicians or not, must find challenging. Um, so I, I think that the, the church, as it were, um, church leaders are able to, to stand, in, in some respects, slightly aside from things, to be able to comment on, on, on matters, to observe what's going on and make constructive um, criticism at times. Um, just going back to Bishop Tom's comment about equipment levels, I mean, there, there have been improvements on that front. Um, just a report in the last few days about uh, the new issue helmet. We've seen um, uh, drives in both equipment levels and cooperation, um, with Afghan forces and police in recent, recent weeks, um, I think that the, the thing I think is so important, and, and Bishop Tom in a way refers to this, is that that momentum must not be lost through lack of funding, and our armed services have been asked by the government to facilitate change in the lives of others, um, and, and they deserve our unswerving support at every level for that.
2: Bishop Richard, thank you very much indeed. That's the, uh, Bishop Richard Moth, the Bishop for the Armed Forces. one with me in the Sitrep st- run, uh, table studio, from the Limehouse Group of Analysts, Hagia and from University College London, the Global Affairs Commentator, Dr Marty McCauley, and from the London Think Tank, Chatham House, the Director of their Middle East Programme, Dr Claire Spencer. Can I try this one on the three of you? Um, it's a bit long, but it's worth it. Uh, The generals say the military can't win in Afghanistan um, because it's the politicians who hold the answers. That doesn't mean to say you can't make a military score, but you can't do it by yourself. But one begins to wonder, are there any answers? Could it be that Afghanistan's politicians won't and can't do what we want them to do? Corruption may not be corruption, but just the way of ruling a country or a bit of it. Warlords are warlords, not squeaky clean administrators. And who are we to question anyway mm-hmm. the people who really know in whitehall say that unless we decide to pull out whatever the state of afghanistan then we're there for at least at least a decade but question has yet to point: do they really know and does anybody really know
5: we do, do not know in the sense that we cannot know the future but on the other hand surely the the answer depends on the definition <clears throat> of win for example, I come from that region. I know that in so-called democratic Turkey, um, people, there's, there's violence definitely, there's a civil war going on. They still uh, uh, cause reaction on the, from the Kurdish people there when they put parliamentary candidates into jail because they've talked to their electorate in Kurdish in my own native Iran. There's always been terrorism. I believe that um, Afghanistan particularly has suffered from uh, being multinational and many ethnic groups such as the Tajiks in the north, the Hazaras, the the Tajiks have been, the Uzbeks have been alienated from the center. Uh, It's going to take a long, long time before we can make a nation and reduce violence to the level of turkey for example it Mm -hmm. requires development on many levels for example we need uh, wages in government offices to be higher so that they do not Where are we talking about in afghanistan they do not ask for bribes we need judiciary to earn more respect from the people so that because judiciary at the moment are seen as tribal we need higher education so that people Mm -hmm. break away from the power of warlords and and
3: um, the tribal leaders. Martin McCauley? But but you go back to the problem which the military has highlighted. Uh, The the key to Afghanistan is economic development. It gives people something to uh, believe in uh, and jobs and build an infrastructure, build a modern state and so on. Afghanistan uh, can look at China, they can look at Vietnam and so on. uh, And where were they 50, 100 years ago? Uh, There's no reason why Afghanistan shouldn't develop. Now, how do you do that? The military say, right, uh, we have to provide security because you can't have economic development yes, without security. It's right. a catch-22 situation. Mm. Then you go back to the problem of uh, it, it's normal to have warlords and clan leaders and so on. Uh, the warlords in China between 1911 and 1949, when the communists took over, they ran China yes. and so on. One of the reasons why China didn't win. So how did China overcome the problem of warlords? Simply either by integrating them into the uh, People's Liberation Army or physically, militarily defeating them, because they are the power brokers and power holders in yeah. regions of the country. Claire, um,
2: part of that question at the beginning, I mean, it, just, it, it sets the mood, doesn't it? Because mm-hmm. there are people, a jolly lot of people, and we got an impression of that when we had the three tenors, the the, the party leaders, rather, <laughs> uh, last week.
0: And T- tonight as well. Yeah,
2: and, but but when they were talking about defence and foreign yeah. policy, we got an impression that they were saying, yes, we've, um, we've got to be there, we've got to be in Afghanistan. But at a time of voting, at a time... Considering the time we've been there, people turn around and say, yeah, but please explain how you're going to fix this. We are expected to fix it because nobody believes that Karzai is going to fix it. This it all exaggerated. It's all just the fact that at election time you're talking slogans and nothing else.
0: Yes, it's a hot potato because, uh, I mean, today's news, quite comically in some of the press, was showing these PowerPoint uh, presentations And one slide in particular, which had arrows all over the place. I mean, I've seen similar from uh, the US CENTCOM trying to explain cause and effect in Afghanistan and judge in some way. And even General McChrystal's come out saying, look, there are certain things that are not bulletable. You can't stick them on bullet points on uh, PowerPoint slides. And I think if we start unearthing the <coughs> cause and effect, for example, the, the Pentagon themselves released this report yesterday on progress on instability um, in uh, Afghanistan saying that you know violence has been up 87% from February of last year to March this year. Now, you could start saying, well, is it perhaps because there are more uh, US and international forces within Afghanistan? In other words, the Taliban is mobilising because they've got more targets, and that causes a huge problem in this discussion of cause and effect, and are we actually achieving some kind of, as, as, uh, as, as has been said, some kind of winnable uh, goal that you can define as being an achievement. Because I've always maintained, and this is true also in Iraq, that so long as foreign forces are present in another country, you can never say that the, you know, the end game is, is, is arrived at, because there will always be a different pal- balance of powers internally uh, when those forces finally leave.
2: Okay. Let's go to Washington and the Pentagon correspondent of the London Times, Michael Evans. Um, Michael, the, I, I, I suppose the Americans were first to say that public, publicly you can't win by military means alone.
6: No, I don't think anyone's foolish enough to suggest that you can, spe- especially in a country like Afghanistan with a history of uh, conflict that is, has that is suffered for decades. So, no, I don't think there's any chance of... Winning militarily, what you have to do is what General McChrystal is at least attempting to do now, uh, is to win over the uh, the Afghan people and to protect the people in key districts in Afghanistan. There's never going to be enough troops to flood the whole of the country. It's a huge country, so they've identified, I think, something like a uh, hundred. 100- 20 or districts which they think are the key ones and then they can focus on those so if they can get some achievement there persuade people that they're actually uh, making progress and providing them with some economic benefits etc in those key districts uh, improve governance etc then maybe you can start talking about uh, having achieved some sort of victory although that's a word which everyone would be wise to avoid.
2: Yes. What does the Pentagon see that we have yet to do in order to say yes we the military have done our bit
6: the key thing is is the afghan national security forces uh, they are way off from being ready yet to uh, to take over that they they could probably take over maybe you know half a dozen districts ones that where there's no problems at all where, where they might as well take over but in all the key areas where there's a lot of uh, taliban intimidation influence and even domination then uh, the Afghan National Security Forces are nowhere near uh, taking over. So uh, the Pentagon's view would be uh, until the Afghan National Security forces, forces are sufficiently capable, professional and armed uh, to do the job that we are currently doing, then, uh, th- then we have to stay there.
2: Does anybody guess a time frame for that?
6: Well, I think, um, unfortunately, President Obama um, did a little bit of guessing when he announced, uh, when he announced his surge of troops uh, he said he wanted the, some of the, the some of the surge troops to start withdrawing in 2011, which I think was rather unfortunate. Because in Afghanistan, you've only got to put a, announce a timeline, and everyone everyone assumes uh, that uh, that means the Americans are starting to withdraw, which it doesn't mean that. It means that some of the surge troops might be brought home, but the actual job of maintaining a a, a sizable U.S. force in Afghanistan isn't going to continue for years, but uh, it does give the wrong impression. So I think um, there isn't a timeline. Uh, Obama said he wanted there to be sufficient progress by uh, 2011 for U.S. troops to start coming home. Um, There will be progress. There is progress, but there certainly won't be sufficient progress by 2011 for... Uh, the coalition to start thinking about packing up and going home.
2: The I mean, tra- going back to this idea of training local forces, um, it's, it's quite different. Different training design than was in, let's say, a- Iraq.
6: Um, yeah, you're starting from a from a different base for a start, um, and the uh, it, it, it is very complicated, very difficult to persuade uh, or to train up enough. Uh, Uh, Afghans uh, to join together, as it were, because they're trying to get all the different uh, ethnic, tribal uh, people together, to to, to work together. Very difficult to to get them to be a coordinated force uh, and very difficult to persuade them to take action against their own people. Uh, Even if uh, they are targeting supposedly Taliban, uh, it's very difficult to get... Uh, a coordinated Afghan force to to, to take action, uh, in particularly if it's
2: in their own home areas. In the, uh, the general election here, the whole story of mm-hmm. Afghanistan doesn't seem to impinge upon the election and very much the electorate. They've just said, well, look, let's get on with it. What about America? You've got elections in the autumn uh, this year. And then, of course, people start winding up for the next presidential election.
6: I think Afghanistan is is a big issue in in this country, but to be quite honest, the November elections are going to be far more about uh, uh, President Obama and his reforms than they are going to be about Afghanistan. Afghanistan is uh, a key issue, but in in the mind of the American people, I'm sure they think, well, Obama has sent 30,000 extra troops to Afghanistan. They're going to be there till at least 2011 and maybe beyond and we'll see how they get on. Their focus, as as the focus is on the UK elections, is much more internal than external, I think.
2: Right. Michael Evans, thank you very much indeed. Um, That's Michael Evans, the Pentagon correspondent of the Times. Uh, the headlines, um, Claire, the headlines are still on President Karzai. Either he's a man under huge pressure doing the is best (gasps) is part of a a system which we would talk about corruption and which we quite often don't understand I mean which is it? it or is it either
0: well, the Pentagon report I referred to before came out with a statistic of only 24%, and that's 29 out of 121 districts that they've obviously polled in actually support the government. So that's only a quarter of the population even now. And these are o- the
2: 20-odd districts which they can actually put their own forces into. Yes,
0: exactly. So they're the ones who are reasonably happy with what's going on and the way things are going. So you've got three quarters of the country who you don't know whether they think he's inefficient, corrupt, or just wants some other form of government, but clearly there is widespread disenchantment um, with his government.
2: Tommy uh, Hashia, the um, the structure at the presidential level, uh, President Karzai's uh, level. What's around him? Does he have a, a, a cabinet? Or, or... He
5: tried from the be- very beginning, as Martin said earlier, to include the former mujahideen um, warlords who had been willing to come over and cooperate with the new order after the um, Taliban were overthrown by American uh, forces. Um, so, uh, And he's also, of course, in a country which is starved of skilled personnel, possibly. He's been trusting perhaps too many of his own relatives. And uh, in the new... Uh, order awash with foreign aid obviously some of these people quite clearly have not been able to resist accumulating great wealth but
2: i mean go back to this though you know is there a sort of like a, a cabinet uh, is there a minister for education is there a minister for reconstruction and is there obviously a defense and foreign minister yeah. and do they have authority over uh, the national interest like you know in other words they got no more authority outside of Kabul and flying
5: In a way it's, uh, uh, the allocation of ministries unfortunately has been sops to influential people uh, p- people clearly were, uh, whom you and I would describe as war, uh, war criminals because of their power regional power have been given important ministries. On the other hand, you would have to say what choice did he have if he
2: wanted Mm.
3: that that region to be on the
2: side of the government? Martin, Martin, call
3: You have to look at Katsai. Karzai is a pushtum. And I wonder how many of these these districts uh, which are okay are in the north. If you take the Tajiks the Turkmen and the Uzbeks, it's basically no trouble. The, the Taliban doesn't really penetrate there because they're pushtun, and yeah, yeah. the trouble with the, the national the Taliban army, are pushtun, yes. Mm. Yes. The trouble with the army is, if you get Tajik, and the Tajiks are very, very good soldiers, Tajik, Uzbek, and Turkmen, why should they go down to the south and fight pushtun? Uh, they are willing to fight, defend themselves in the north so that the Taliban doesn't penetrate the north. Oh,
2: can I just ask, are all uh, Taliban pushtun?
3: I, I think Almost it is 99%.
2: Except all. presumably is, yeah. the, the, the so-called foreign foreigners, the ones that come in from outside. There are,
5: there are very few. For example, Uzbeks from Central Asia, etc., even some Chinese personnel. But, of course, we must not forget Pakistani um, mm. Taliban mm. who are of the same ethnic uh, uh, there they, they are called patans. Right. In Afghanistan they are called pashtuns. But they are They're basically the same. the same
3: people and the mm-hmm. border has been porous and they've got family links, etc. Yeah. This, this is a fundamental problem because when you come from the United States or Europe, this is something that Europe had 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago.
0: I think we still have a bit of it
3: here. We still have a bit, but, but basically you have moved on and society has, if you like, society has emerged Afghanistan hasn't gone through that process yet and you normally uh, expect it to go through that process when there's industrialization. Okay, industrialization now somebody tell me
2: about together. the Shura, because if we're going to understand this, we, we hear talk all the time, well there's been a uh, as, there, as there was in the in the district of uh, Dadali um, a Shura meeting to discuss the uh, district council elections which I didn't even know they had district council elections, which happened in mid mid May, happening next month. Now tell me, uh, somebody Hashir, what about Ashura? What actually is it? Ashura
5: means uh, elders, you in, in practice. Elders uh, tribal leaders and that means of course by giving them power you uh, encourage more people to look up them mm-hmm. up to them for wealth for, for patronage that means in a way you're encouraging okay but they don't meet well.
2: i mean this is i'm not being i'm not mm-hmm. trying to be funny here but they don't meet in a town hall do they i mean this particular sure, i was no. talking about i was reading that it, they met in somebody's compound it's yes. that sort of country that we have to understand <coughs> that's right very much but so in the government but you, see, you but you see
3: i wouldn't use the word corruption i don't think the word corruption applies to afghanistan because you have to look at the nature of the society yeah. which is common in many other parts of the world where personal contacts uh, and elders and clan leaders and so on play a very important role. And if you want something done, you have to give them a present. Mm. That's normal in many, many countries of the world. So, therefore, Afghanistan is not... that, And that's one of the reasons why the Americans have such great difficulty in understanding this society because uh, they have all this legislation banning bribery. They call it bribery and corruption. And Martin, that chief stays in place
5: because he has to pay so many people underneath mm, him as I'm well. I say, it's so, a yeah.
0: distribution network. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the, the whole point of the Shura yeah. system is that the key stakeholders as to use new yeah. Labour yeah. language. Yeah. language. It's, it's Well, they are yeah. all consulted. Yeah. This is a society, and this is true across many areas of the Islamic world, in which consultation and consensus matter a lot. And when it works, it's a, it's a system that works well. The problem is, as, as has been said, when there's a lot of new money... Swilling yeah. around. Suddenly yeah. imbalances become much more evident and it's much yeah, more Because threat. it's, ex- it's based
3: on networks. Yeah. Uh, and you have to get ahead of the network. If you mm. get ahead of the networks working together, it's great. But if they work against you, uh, they can really nullify you. And Ismail Khan, the mm. governor or warlord of Herat, is
5: known for being clean, he's...
0: Relatively.
5: Not uh, relatively. Mm. Well, the one that tyrant... Tyrant, yes, but less uh, powerful, less uh, wealthy than you would expect.
2: Because mm. yeah. he looks after his own. That's yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, we always hear, as uh, site is an example of the, of the good guy among these governors, is uh, Gulab Mangal, mm. isn't he, at Helmand? And people say, well, this is, this is, this is pretty good. Uh,
3: is he the only one? What? But, so then do he, but how does then he how does he maintain his influence hmm. if he doesn't give presence? If he's he's the head of a network. This is the key to it. He's the head of a yeah. network. This network is like a spider, hmm. and it's all family members, all groups, all hmm. clan, and so on. And then he negotiates with the head of another network who's a different tribe, and so on. And they come to some agreement. That's basically the way they operate. Okay,
2: listen on the line. I hope from Lahore is the scholar and author of the celebrated books, Descent into Chaos, and Taliban, uh, it's uh, Ahmed Rashid. Um, are, we, Ahmed, are we making too much of this, uh, the idea of patronage, uh, etc.? Is there much a simpler way of looking at it?
7: Well, I think, you know, the, the, the early years after 2001, um, not enough... Um, Effort was put into reconstruction, which, of course, uh, meant the, the classic uh, development model, as well as uh, uh, trying to do what, uh, you know, the Afghans were used to, which was going through the tribes, using patronage, um, identifying...
2: Aha, I th- elders are you hmm. done. Tell me, when we talk about reconstruction... We're talking essentially about foreign aid. Who gives the money, and who is the money given to? Because that seems to be rather an important element in this. Well, I think the
7: real uh, tragedy has been that only something like 23% of the money uh, that Afghanistan receives from uh, the United States and from Europe is presently going through the government. Now, uh, and the rest is... um, either being uh, distributed by the big um, uh, national NGOs, like Diffit for Britain, or is being um, uh, spent by these five uh, the international NGOs. In other words, big contracts are signed with the contractors who...
2: Hello, i I think we're sort of losing um, Ahmed Rashid there, and it's a lousy, lousy line, and we do apologise for that, or blame BT, whichever you're used to doing. Um, We'll try and get um, Ahmed back. Isn't um, the so-called... Martin McCauley, the so-called enlightened, say that talking to the enemy, for example, is not a very good idea. Um, But really... um, if from some of the things that you can gather from what Ahmed Rashid was saying there um, is that you've got to have this, this idea of where you're challenging money, uh, where you're going to sort of create good impressions and also make it good for other people. That's when you start talking to your enemy, isn't it? Because you think you can, liber- you, know, you, can you can lower the thresholds.
3: Yes, and you have something to give them. Uh, it's not just saying that support us and the future will be bright. They have some, something to give. And money is very powerful. It works and so on. So therefore you're trying to split uh, if you have an opposition group. Uh, you're trying to split it into in the, the theory is always there's moderates, middle people, centrists, and extremists, and you eliminate the extremists, the fundamentalists, because uh, you can talk to your blue in the face and uh, they will never listen to you. You concentrate on the centrists and the, and the uh, moderates, and you hope that in this way you can worm your way in and gradually convince them that uh, your way is is the the correct way, and so on. But if you uh, if you in fact uh, deliver to the wrong group. We go mm. back to, again to the networks. If you then favour one network against another, the others feel very, very aggrieved, and they will oppose you, and there will be more conflict because there's something to fight about. So, unfortunately, the more money there is, there's more, the, st- the more uh, conflict mm. there will Iran be. Really right. It, right. Where uh, it's half past the hour, and uh,
2: you listen to SITREP on BFPS Radio 2 with me, Christopher Lee, with me, uh, Hashia Tamorian. Dr. Marta McCauley and Dr. Claire Spencer. Claire, do we get an idea who we speak to? Do we actually know who we speak to?
0: Well, I think the problem is with uh, designations of groups like the Taliban is who has actually got the leverage to make any difference. And so you could talk to lots of different groups, some of whom are opportunistic Taliban, shall we, shall we say, who can probably deliver local communities. But the problem is, is when you're deciding whose version, obviously people are going to use the opportunity to sell a particular line and a particular set of grievances. And I think it's very difficult for outsiders to decide along this spectrum of extremists and moderates who are the people they really need the mm-hmm to do business with. On the other hand, I think not engaging with people ends up with stereotyping, you know, the group of Taliban when there's been lots of question marks o- over, you know, this is the term we use, but what does it actually represent? Is it an insurgency? You know, so talking to different groups has to be one way of finding out what in general people want um, and working okay. out a strategy on the basis of good intelligence. Without that sort of interaction, you're not really going to know yeah. what's, what the red lines are in different, uh, different areas is the conflict. Right. Well, I'm
5: glad the two of you implied a definition of talking to the enemy. If you were to talk to Mullah Omar, the leader of the, um, uh, the, the Taliban, or Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda, you're lost. You're mm. admitting that we have absolutely no hope. We've, this is a stalemate. Let's make a coalition with them. But on the other hand, when you offer... Well, historically, um, that's what's always happened. Yeah, well, if, if you're equal, if you're equal, I believe in the case of the, the, the Taliban, so many tribal leaders, opportunistic ones, basically after money and power, if you're going to split them, you're going to say to some of them, if you come over to some of us, you have a better life. You, we are not going to touch too much your regional power base.
2: Um, so you're, you're yeah, But I've split. been reading a load of statistics which show that, uh, uh, that people did go over, um, because there was some ISAF or, or NATO money, for example, and it was so measly and that people were so miserable about uh, putting it all out, they went back again and something like 20, what was it, 27 of them, Martin,
3: actually returned and said, this, this, this is not what you were promising. See, the problem, the problem with this is you go to one network and you deliver money and they're okay for one year mm. and then you withdraw yes, and sir. you leave them out in the cold. So what are they going to do? Are they going to then say uh, to the Taliban and the others, uh, the Taliban will come, we would like some of your money. Uh, So therefore, to exist, they have to do a deal with it back again with the Taliban.
5: And everybody in the third world loves Westerners' money, doesn't it? Expectations. For example, I've heard that at the moment when Saddam Hussein fell in Iraq, there was... Uh, the, there were only a few mobile phones in the co- position of security forces. Last October there were 19.5 million mobile f- phone subscribers and it- if as a young man you don't have one, you're a failure.
2: Okay, talking about a success and a mobile telephone, Ahmed Ra- Rashid is now back on the line from Lahore ah. and on a mobile. We can all rely on mobiles. Ahmed, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, we, 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 we put in here. We've been talking about uh, the possibility of talking to Taliban and Taliban talking to whoever. Does Taliban actually want to talk or is that too broad a question?
7: Well, I think certainly the mainstream Taliban have indicated that they do want to talk. Um, After all, they have been talking uh, to representatives of the Karzai administration over the last 12 months, uh, and they seem to have said very clearly that they want to talk to them and they want to continue those talks, and they want to talk to the Americans. Um, And we've seen, for example, in their messaging on their website, uh, we've seen a change of attitude. Uh, uh, We've seen the dropping of uh, uh, the successive use of jihad and um, uh, the the terminology of Islamic extremism, much more trying to paint themselves as nationalists and patriots, Um, also trying to address this issue about al-Qaeda, saying that they would not tolerate um, in any future agreement, they would not tolerate any foreign group on their soil. So, um, you know, there are a lo- there's a lot of messaging going on, I think, at the moment, which indicates that they do want to talk.
2: There's also um, a, a sense uh, that and all wars are like this, that you, you learn as you go along. And I'm just wondering if, the, when this whole thing started the perceived solution was to send in, or Western solution, was to send in a coalition of primarily Western troops. Was that ever the solution?
7: Well, I I, I think it was unavoidable after what happened in 2001 and the fact that, you know, Al-Qaeda was... Um, uh, literally ruling Afghanistan with, you know, alongside the Taliban. And then the Taliban were given the option uh, to hand over Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and they didn't take it up. So I think, you know, it, it was inevitable that there would be a war. I think what, you know, the mistake really starts from um, the bond agreement which uh, uh, finally set up the interim government which was um, headed by Karzai in 2001. And in that bond agreement there was no attempt to really reach out to uh, and uh, neither the Taliban nor the Pashtun ethnic group, which the Taliban represented. There was a very few Pashtuns at the table.
2: I wonder, tell me what part does Pakistan play in this, because it seems such a regional, long-term solution that we're looking for.
7: Well, it seems that a lot of the Taliban leadership is in Pakistan. Their families are here, uh, and consequently... Uh, there's a lot of influence that Pakistan carries with the Taliban. And uh, uh, I think any kind of negotiation, uh, be it with the Americans or the Qadrari government or anyone else, will have to take uh, that into account. Now, at the same time, um, Pakistan has interests in Afghanistan, and it's made it very clear that it wants those interests uh, uh, addressed. But there are other neighbors also who are... Um, also wanting their interests addressed, Iran, the Central Asian republics, um, uh, a, and, and further afield, India, Russia, China, Saudi Arabia. So any kind of dialogue with the Taliban also has to entail a, a broader dialogue within the region uh, and some kind of settlement.
2: Part of a regional uh, reading. When did you do descent into chaos? How long ago was well, that?
7: Well, I, it took me four years to do, actually, but it came out uh, last year, um, and is now out in, in, in paperback. And it really, uh, it, it brings, it, it, it covers the period from 2001 to 2009.
2: You see, when I was, when I was going through it, I thought myself, well, we, we don't seem to have actually, we're still in that chaos. Uh, there's, I couldn't see any signs that we were coming out of it, or am I being a pessimist?
7: Well, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's certainly a mixture of both. I think the regional situation has become much worse in the sense that you've got the conflict with Iran and, and the West. You've got India, Pakistan, um, uh, the situation being much more tense and worse than before after the Mumbai attacks. Um, and, and in Afghanistan, you've got some good signs, but you've also got some very bad signs. Um, the elections certainly... Uh, was a, a, a very difficult um, issue and has really undermined perhaps the credibility of the government and, and, and its Western backers. Um, and now you have a much more determined effort in the South to try and roll back the Taliban and at the same time to bring in development and reconstruction. So, it, you know, it's, it's a very, very tense moment. And I think the next few months... Um, Uh, are going to be very difficult, both inside Afghanistan and on the borders of Afghanistan. Um, But I think there's enormous determination uh, by the Western powers and by the Afghans um, uh, to get things done.
2: And in the meantime, uh, President Karzai is, for the moment anyway, the only gaming town. He's our boy.
7: Yes, certainly. I mean, I think, you know, I think once the West had endorsed the election. I think there was absolutely no question that they they could no longer um, question Kazai or his motive. Now, certainly, you know, this is a leader who has not done um, governance or good governance uh, and, and dealt with corruption, not just today, but over the last uh, seven or eight years. And uh, this is not someone who's been really building up institutions. And I think... Um, The way, uh, perhaps, around this is what some of the military leaders in Afghanistan have been doing, um, uh, NATO and the U.S., which is that you perhaps uh, at moments work around the president, work through the cabinet, uh, work through ministers and governors and people who can uh, deliver the goods, um, and and who take a firmer view uh, of, of certain issues.
2: Ahmed Rashid, thank you very much, Ahmed Rashid, there in Lahore, on a much better line. Uh, Hashir, can I just try one thing? Um, It's taken a long time to get the sort of thinking that Ahmed Rashid was talking about there, to, to get it in and hear it in, if you like, official circles. Why is that?
5: Uh, please explain, explain yourself to me. <laughs> I didn't get that
2: quite. Right. OK. Um, it seems to me that Ahmed Rashid is yep. talking about what has got to be done. Yes. Uh, everybody now nods and says, yeah, that's right. But the governance, for example. Well, it's, it's, you mentioned something for the other day about higher education or, uh, well, uh, just now. Um, yes. It's got to be done. How is it that it's taken so long to get to what I heard, if you excuse me, I heard um, uh, somebody at the MOD say, uh, uh, to get to the bleeding obvious.
5: Well, I think that um, with your ear to the ground, um, in the Afghan situation, you've heard that sort of demand and urging from the Afghans themselves. There's always been... uh, complaints about uh, not enough uh, government schools, etc., too much money. So, why didn't going we get et cetera, into et it? Uh, we po- possibly, in here, we were con- concentrating on the demand for a quick military victory, and I think there's not going to be a quick military victory. But, I think, when Ahmed was talking, I was thinking to myself, yes, the very fact that... <clears throat> because... Taliban had closed all the girls' schools, but now there are thousands of girls' school girls' schools in Afghanistan. So there are large areas in Afghanistan where the, some improvement has been achieved. In the, 20, in, the, in the in the
2: in the twenty-one provinces, uh, yeah, which that's are not, quite a lot. Yeah, uh, Martin McCormick. <clears throat> I think
3: the the key here are institutions. Um, somebody mentioned uh, the building of institutions and so on in Afghanistan. Institutions uh, basically are on the drawing board. Yeah. they did not function a That's traditional correct. society like Afghanistan did not function through institutions, you yeah. don't have power through institutions yeah. right. all power is personal That's true. And, and you see the chief or the, uh, the network leader or the prime minister and so on he represents that, so therefore Afghanistan slowly has to if you're going to modernise it, you have to go through institutions, if you go through education mm-hmm. you have to stop looking at one person at the top you have to work through a minister of education and so on, who will then disperse money and so on
2: Claire, can I go back to this idea about um, uh, talking to the people who were once enemies mm. and let 's look at it in um, in Iraq, an example that we uh, that we have followed in Iraq we were there, we knew that we were going to talk to people, that when we went in, we no way we were going to talk to them. It has to happen, doesn't it?
0: Yes, it does, but there, there's other parts of the equation, which is what can you deliver once you've talked to them? I mean, I know the British military um, had a lot of problems with this when understanding what people in uh, Basra wanted was basically jobs and infrastructure for an economy, education, all things we've just been touching on. And the British military didn't have the wherewithal to produce this. They, they, there is a big difference between having a capacity to build institutions, whether physically you can produce a school out of bricks and mortar. And this has been going on um, for years. I was in Afghanistan in 2004, and there was a lot of this going on. But it takes a much longer period, uh, as has been said, to change the cultures in which those institutions function. So you can people a ministry and say, right, you've all got X, Y and Z job. But if people don't understand how it works, that there aren't, there isn't a culture, if you like, an institutional culture of impartial uh, rules of the game that everyone has to abide by. And even in Western organisations, we have problems with people not, you know, side going around the rules and regulations and formal processes. Um, this will not function, and um, that's the problem. Is is you can talk to people, but if you're going to talk and engage them, you've got to be able to deliver something they want.
2: Okay, let's 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 take this closer to home as an example. On the line the director of, uh, of the Institute for Peace and Conflict Research at Lancaster University, uh, Dr. Fergal Cochrane. Um, now, your area of study is the Northern Ireland peace process, um, where, frankly, we, uh, or the British government, successive British governments, talk to people in, for example, um, the IRA, Sinn Féin IRA, uh, who publicly, they say they weren't going to talk t- uh, to them Is there a parallel? Is there a way we can get a parallel here with what's going on in Afghanistan?
7: Uh,
1: um, Well, uh, good afternoon. I think that um, there's always a risk of um, making, you know, too many, uh, looking for too many parallels when they don't exist. So having, you know, that said, uh, there does tend to be a pattern when groups think that they can't win militarily to uh, look for other avenues and uh, that really was experience in Northern Ireland. Uh, there was a twin-track strategy. On the one hand, try and cobble together some form of political agreement between moderates and at the same time contain violence. And one of the ways of containing violence was to see whether it was possible to co-opt, in particular, the provisional IRA. Um, so this sort of, obviously, one of those tracks tends to go in secret and one tends to go in public. And... Uh, Yes, there was a period of of talking to the IRA in secret whilst saying that uh, they weren't doing it in public. Um, But that, even though there's a lot of focus on the 1990s, that link really existed from the 1970s, albeit it was dormant for several years at a time.
3: People
2: were brought over to the UK, Mm. weren't they, to talk?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, in 1972, Martin McGuinness was flown over and actually talks were held in in Paul Channon's house, a former Conservative Minister. Um, And interestingly, you know, at that time it wasn't particularly sort of cloak and dagger type activity although William Whitelaw subsequently was shocked by uh, the people he spoke to and what their views were. But I think one of the interesting questions here is the extent to which you find out information about your opponents. And the view of the British government, I think, at that time was that they needed to get an idea about the thinking within the Republican community, and I suppose that's a parallel in Afghanistan as well. Our efforts being made to find out what the thinking is within the Taliban, and and how far can they go down that route uh, without uh, damaging their political
2: uh, position in the public sense. This idea of, uh, of of damage. I was in I was in the Commons when the then Prime Minister John Major said. Uh, it would turn his guts, I think, was a sort of phrase he used. It would turn my guts to think that we were talking to uh, IRA. And we've been talking to them for certainly 10, 15 years.
1: Mm, yes, I mean, although it wasn't just John Major, as I've just, as I've just said. Yes, he said it would, it would turn his stomach. Now, this was actually a, a, in response to a question from Dennis Skinner. When when leaks had emerged that actually secret talks had been going, going on since 1990, and in 1993 that exchange happened in the House of Commons. Um, now that was very unfortunate for John Major in that he it was very difficult for him to admit there and then that in fact he had been doing that for three years. That included when Downing Street was bombed and mortared by the IRA in 1990, uh, and off, and obviously you know, the Warrington killings as well. So. Um, it comes a point for political leaders when this twin track strategy comes home to roost and unfortunately for John Major that happened to him in 1993 but he subsequently said in his in his, in his autobiography that uh, this link was important for subsequent discussions between you know the uh, hardline Republicans and the British government because they had had this period of you know almost sort of searching out each other's bottom lines and that that preparatory work uncomfortable, though it was,
2: subsequently fed into the peace process. So, can I uh, just bring this up to date, uh, or uh, something else that's going on? I was reading this morning that um, the police service in Northern Ireland may, may have to delay the disbandment of certain reservists because of the dissidents, um, or the dissident operations. At a time of the, of the general elections... This puts a lot of pressure, doesn't it, on people, including Sinn Féin?
1: Uh, absolutely. The timing is bad for Sinn Féin, um, but again, there's an issue here, of suppose, of a security judgment versus a political judgment. And um, this, the, what you'll find is, and as I'm sure I don't need to tell uh, people listening, uh, is that... Um, paramilitary factions and uh, and groups are extremely politically attuned to their contexts and the dissident has you know, obviously been, been trying to destabilise Sinn Féin's position through bomb attacks and so on, bomb explosions um, and that actually, puts a, actually squeezes Sinn Féin quite badly between on the one hand presiding over the policing system and on the other hand uh, having to remilitarize the region and bring the police back onto the streets. And it, it puts Sinn Féin in a, it, quite a tricky position, that, uh, overall. Uh, but I actually don't think it's going to have a massive impact on their vote. Uh, I think that they'll, in the short term, be able to deal with that. But if that delay continues, uh, and, and sort of operationally, if policing becomes more of a militarised phenomenon, then it becomes quite difficult for Sinn Féin's position in
2: government. Okay. Fergal Cochrane, thank you very much. I, I, people like to know um, Ending Wars, which is um, with Co- Fergal Cochrane's book. Um, it's just published. Worth a look at. Right. Christopher can, we, can we just, hang on, I just want to move on because we've got a lot of stuff to get through. Uh, have we answered any of this? I mean, do we actually understand better why, uh, A, you can't win militarily? Um, B, <coughs> Um, why it's taken so long to understand certain things that we should have understood before?
0: I think... Well, I think yeah, we never, we never seem to learn from our mistakes. I mean, it, and I think there's, there's an institutional side to this, which is with a whole series of funders, and I, I know this from my experience in the development community, is that it's very, very difficult to coordinate lots of bureaucracies. You know, when you get national funding, you get European Union funding, you get pledges from individual governments, you've got uh, the UN trying to oversee the civilian side and the military. It took a long time, don't forget, for there to be an integrated military mission. The ISAF was on its own, it was the mm. peacekeeping force, alongside the, what was it called, Operation Enduring Freedom, which was a more belligerent American effort in the South. It's, it's taken them this long to say, we need to coordinate. Everybody knows from day one you need to coordinate. This is not the first time there's been a complex international emergency. We had years of experience in the Balkans of this, with NATO involved, NATO's involved in this. Enough said, I think it's a tragedy, but bureaucracies and financial transparency is a key issue here. People have to account the, for the way the money is spent.
5: I think for me, one great failure or shortcoming of our leaders in Britain and America has been that they have not had the courage to say to the people of Afghanistan, if, first of all, we are there primarily for our own security, because your country for example, which produced 9-11, um, is a, was a threat to our security. Secondly, if necessary, we are going to be there for 100 years with you. I think that would have concentrated the minds of some of these more moderate, realistic yes, enemies. certainly would in the general election I here. Was going to say, they yeah, I, I would so. like them to say, yes, w- they have said we are there for security of our streets, but I would like to, them to say we are going to be there for 100 years if necessary and w- to make sure that
3: central government takes roots
2: in Exactly what
3: we said in 1838. Look what happened. <laughs> now, you can win militarily in a country. And the way you do it is by uh, wiping out the opposition and imposing martial law. Mm-hmm. So you can do it. But if your agenda is also political, There are two ways of doing it. One, you win militarily, and then you impose, like Japan in 1945, Germany in 1945. You impose your political format on that. But if you don't win militarily in the first place, you can't really achieve political success. And we are in this melange, in this spaghetti. I think we've got
2: too many allies in Afghanistan to give up so easily. Right, dictatorship, that's what we're in for. (laughs) Okay, uh, listen, it's... Gracious me, we've only got seven minutes left. Uh, Any other business? Um, Iraq, uh, the violence goes on, doesn't it, uh, uh, Claire? And the election or the indecision over the election can't help.
0: No, this is part of the, uh, everyone's trying to stake a claim and, you know, show their presence and have some kind of influence over the political outcome. And I predicted this will continue as and when the US forces withdraw, sadly, because there will still be constituencies that want to make sure if it can't be done. And unfortunately, these elections looked as though coalition approaches to resolving the political and pass at the centre would do it, but in, unfortunately the results were too close, and so the constituencies involved are battling it out.
2: Do we want to a too uh, clean sort of solution to all these things? We go in, Your we thing. do it, uh, we come out, cut to advertisements. <laughs>
0: Well, as I I said earlier, I think what hasn't been factored in is while there is a foreign presence in Iraq, you know, holding the peace in some ways that they may be, it will always falsify the end equation. You know, countries which are under some kind of occupation or where a large part of the population feel they're under occupation will never resolve things while the external forces are still there. The interest of the West in Iraq is oil. The West wants
3: to make sure that more and more oil, and oil is back to the pre-war situation, more and more oil. If you can then separate that from the rest, and you hand the, Iraq over to the Iraqis, and they can fight until doomsday, provided the oil flows, that would be as it s- does
2: in the Mexican Gulf at the moment. That would be that would be the
3: solution.
5: Really, the West oil would, would have flown under Saddam Hussein because he had to sell it. I think his troublemaking was one major aim for this war. But we must put the violence into context. Uh, violence has. Uh, Is half of 2008, you see, Mm -hmm. according to Iraq body body count. Only 4,644 people died, unfortunately, last year. Only
2: 4,600 and something died? But
5: the year before, it was 9,000. Ah, that's good, isn't that? And it's the least since 2003. Okay, listen, uh, last week... Evolution has been achieved, by the way, in Iraq. Yes. Uh, Power has been taken away from a minority of Sunnis, given to the
2: majority Shiites. Is that good? anybody anybody because
5: anybody think think everybody
0: accepts it i mean the shiites can't... and shiites is unfortunately right.
3: because they haven't got the oil
2: okay listen last week we were talking <laughs> about uh hezbollah and um, and missiles mm. united states defense secretary robert gates is confirming what we said this week southern lebanon he says uh, Hezbollah has now more rockets and missiles than most governments <laughs> I mean, perhaps, <laughs> impure, you know, perhaps how they get them ought to be part of the strategic <laughs> defence review later this year I mean, who is doing it? Uh, Iran, of course. Uh, well, the latest story
0: the is it's the Syrians have supplied, I mean, very unfortunate timing because everyone's now trying to woo the Syrians and get them back into the fold and there was a congressional hearing for a new US ambassador to go to Damascus and everybody was in positive mode and then suddenly news comes out that um, Syria's been supplying his bulla with scuds which of course sets the Israelis up in arms you know and the reach of They'll these things they do something is... about
2: it will they well,
0: well I mean this is one of the problems is while there's a stalemate at the centre of all this namely no peace process worthy of the name all uh, the spoilers... between
2: Palestine and Israel
0: absolutely all the spoilers the Israelis are hinging their priority on containing Iran and his bulla being allied to Iran is obviously preparing itself for a lashback at Israel and this is what many people are saying is the sporting... war is on the horizon yeah, where,
3: where does sc- Syria scuds come from exactly
5: well i don't
0: know who supplies them i suspect but the certainly.
5: chinese who pays for them iran of course yeah but because i suspect syria the chinese channel syria is only a channel, mm. only a channel. Yeah, it is iraq it supplies both the money and okay and both countries believe that if they indulge in this sort of action america will talk right them.
2: uh martin the the junks the junk navy, I mean, it's a hard... The famous Chinese navy. Yeah, so so tell me, it, it, there was one in the 13th, 14th century, wasn't yes, there? Yes, and China, for China ruled,
3: ruled the waves in those days, uh, Apache Britain, Apache England in those days. And then this uh, Chinese emperor was afraid of losing his subjects, so he banned... Uh, uh, so what's jun- happening
2: now? They're, they're, they're well, building bases all over the no, world. They,
3: they, they, there's a string of pearls going going from mm. China right round to uh, uh, Arabia, and then they want one in Africa and so on. That's basically economic. It's mainly Sri Lanka... Uh, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Myanmar—they uh, uh, basically now should we be worried? It's economic? No, because it's basically economic. So they'll look after us, won't they?
2: Yeah. <laughs> they want to preserve the. Oh, we yeah, can't the oil do
0: routes, it. Exactly. they the oil routes <laughs> and the okay. trade routes. That's what they're really. Right
2: now, it's, okay. it's listen. We've got a minute and a half or so. It's uh, it's philosophy time. Um, <laughs> it's philosophy hour for the next two and a half minutes. Yesterday, the prime minister called a voter a bigot. He a is. bigot, in, in or whatever was like that i mean he regretted it, of course and he apologized and the headlines this morning are not not the real debate of course of course now as the, as the program's resident intellectual <laughs>
3: There you are. A bigot, in, sort of in bigot in Scots dialect. Bigot in Scots dialect means a nice woman.
6: Uh,
5: ah. <laughs> bigot is, is an intellectual. Because tell, me, tell me what bigot. it is. Yeah. Tell me what it means. The, uh, the, uh, the origin of the word is unknown in the English language, but there's a, a French word called bigoterie, which mm. means uh, uh, obstinacy. Mm. But on the other hand, it began in the English language as a professor of religion who did one thing but preached another.
2: Uh, like Mr. Brown, for example. <laughs> okay, he we've got a minute to go. <laughs> Listen, I, I'm just wondering, and we then he apologised have, Paul, Paul, Hang on, his. hang on. He just then apologised, didn't he? Yes. I mean, don't we do this
3: apology thing too much? Come on. Who, who no, Gordon B- Brown, Brown before this year never apologised for anything. He never, he never used the who word. did? Gordon Brown. He never said he was wrong. And so, on. and now he's in confessional mode. He uses a extraordinary expression This is
2: not a political programme. I just like the way. Shouldn't we have more bigots? I'm one. Yeah. You're a bigot, aren't yeah. you? Yeah. You're bigot um, are you a bigot Anybody believes in something is a bigot. Are you a bigot?
0: Oh, I'm sure I am. On Which football team do you support? Well, I don't. Yeah. You know Wraith where you Rovers.
2: Wraith Rovers. <laughs> um, Here we go. That's it. We've got some music running. I'm a bigot. I'm off. Um, that's it. Thank you, Haji Tomorrow. Thank you, Marty McCauley and Claire Spencer. Thank all bigots. Um, <laughs> poor, poor lady. Uh, we'll be back next week on Election Day. We'll have a final question for them all. From them all, If she'd been standing, would Sarah Palin oh, no. have won? Stop <laughs> own-knowing. We're going to discuss this seriously. Until then, I'm Christopher Lee. Mary? Mary's in the hut. <laughs> with
0: Christopher Lee.